please join with me as I pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks, a God who's made himself known. We do pray that you'll calm our minds and our hearts and that we may hear you speak tonight. May we grow in an appreciation of who we are if we're your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, after school, uh, the first part-time job I got was working at Blue Gum Lodge. I was a weekend host, uh, which means groups would come in and I would serve them their food. Now, I noticed as people would come that I'd hear the phrase, uh, I'll have them all please, quite a bit, but I'd hear it at different times and from different people. Let me explain. When it was time for a roast dinner and laid out before people was the roast vegetables, the creamy cauliflower, uh, the potatoes, the pumpkin, at that point, adults tended to say, oh, I'll have them all, please. Yet it was very rare to hear a child at that point, a bit pickier about their vegetables. Although when it came to dessert time and everyone got a scoop of vanilla ice cream and then on the counter they had strawberry ice cream, uh, sorry, strawberry topping, chocolate topping and caramel topping, it's at that point I noticed children were more likely to say, I'll have them all please. This sickly sweet bowl of chocolate topping, strawberry topping mixed all together, I can't think that it would have been very enjoyable. There might have been some adults interested in having all the flavours, but they would suppress it. They'd keep it to themselves. They'd think, I'm too grown up for this. In the city of Corinth, uh, people were really on about growth. They wanted to progress. They wanted to be upwardly mobile, to achieve, to grow their portfolios. They wanted to climb the ladders with the right knowledge, rhetoric, and leaders that would help them do it. They were a, church, they were a culture who wanted to grow. Now the culture we find ourselves living in too is a culture interested in growth. Is our education standards, are they improving? Are people's careers on the right trajectory? Is our healthcare getting better? Is there equality? Are property prices where we want them to be? And you see, when we live in such a culture so, so fascinated with growth, Sometimes we forget how different the church is from the world in which we live. That's definitely the case for the church in Corinth. So the question that we'll be answering tonight is how does the church grow? And as we answer that question, I hope that'll be useful for us as we think about what it is that we are the church. Um, if you've got an outline, you can follow along. We're up to uh, the immature church in verses 1 to 4. Uh, read with me from verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I wonder if you can remember last week when we were reminded at the end of chapter 2 that the Spirit of God is what makes a Christian. It's through the God's Holy Spirit that people are convicted of their sin, drawn to the foot of the cross, where there they have their, their sin dealt with. They find forgiveness and then they grow in Christ-likeness after that. The Spirit produces people who live by the Spirit. And this church would have been loved to be addressed like that. The visible way of life which shows that the Spirit is working within them. In one of Paul's other letters to the church in Galatia, he deals with this tension. Let me read a small section from Galatians 5. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desire, 
desires is contrary to the spirit and what the spirit is contrary to the flesh. They are each in conflict with each other. Paul will go on in Galatians to say, what does it look like to, have, uh, to live by the Spirit? People who bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But again, how did Paul address this church? Verse 1, worldly, mere infants in Christ. Such a hard, harsh rebuke for a church so interested in growth and progress. He's confident to say they are a church who is in Christ, that is, they are saved, but they are immature. The proof is that this church is full of jealousy and quarreling. This continues what we first heard about back in chapter 1, verse 11. The report from Chloe's household had come to Paul, and the church was full of quarrels. Both jealousy and quarreling are listed back in Galatians as acts of the flesh. They are said to be contrary to the Spirit. Read with me from verse 2. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Uh, when a baby doesn't progress from milk to solid food, something is going wrong. And that is what's happening in this church. The infighting and the division is a sign of their immaturity. Something's going wrong. Now, we might not have this same sense of divisionness within our church. Um, you might have a preacher you prefer to listen to, but we're not so much placarding after church. I'm with Steve. I'm with Stephen. Thank goodness, that would be quite awkward. But still, we should be a church interested in growth. But here we're reminded that growth doesn't look just intellectual. Our actions and our character and our fruit is what shows our growth. What we'll continue to see is, well, where is the source of this growth? And that's what Paul will address now. The truth about how the church grows. Firstly, the church is grown by God, verses 5 to 9. Read with me from verse 5. What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each his task. You see, the antidote to this division created by their allegiances to leaders is Paul wants the human leaders put in their right place. Paul acknowledges that he came to the church and then he moved on. Apollos came and had the next sort of input in the church. Verse 5 says, through them they came to believe. Yes, God did use these leaders. But what does Paul say about himself and the other gospel workers, Apollos and Peter or Cephas? Verse 5, well, we are just servants. Verse 5, the Lord assigned us each a task. Verse 8, we have the same purpose. And in verse 9, we are co-workers with God. You see, if God's work is unified in how he works in the church, so should his church be. Let's keep reading in verse 6. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Now, God's involvement in the church is shown through this agricultural metaphor, repeated twice, God gives growth. 
Uh, when Georgia and I were first married, we lived in a very small unit. Uh, we didn't even have an outside balcony. So to, I guess, bring some, some life into the place, we really got into indoor plants. We bought a book about indoor plants, and I saw this really cool picture. It was a plant growing out of an avocado seed, and I thought, that's what our place needs. I followed the instructions perfectly. I prepared the seed. I put some skewers in it, put it in just the right amount of water, placed it in the right part of the house, and I waited. And I waited, and I waited, and then Georgia threw it in the bin (laughs) because it never grew. You see, you don't need to garden for long to know that planting a seed and watering a seed is pointless if it doesn't grow. That is what God does amongst his people. He gives the growth. But this isn't just individual growth, but also the corporate growth of the church. In verse 9, Paul says, you collectively are God's field. You see, the church isn't like a community garden patch where everyone has their own little part and you you tend it. No, the church is God's because he grows it. He gives the growth, the health, the vitality, and the flourishing. How did you become a Christian? How How do Christians grow? Well, it's a work of God. And as good as it is to read Christian books or to go to conferences or to listen to good preachers, nothing will happen unless God does the growth. And what we'll see is that this growth isn't random. It has a location, a source, a foundation. So it brings us to our next point. The truth about growth is the church is built on Christ in verses 10 to 15. From the agricultural metaphor, now we move forward into an architectural one. And the church is said to be God's building, but differently in this metaphor, God is not the builder. Read with me from verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ. Here Paul describes himself as a master builder. God has given Paul a job to establish the church in Corinth. The foundation that Paul laid was the gospel message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. God's building, God's church, built on God's son. It's the only location by which Christian ministry can take place. There is no other foundation. Uh, The house my dad grew up in was built in the 1920s or 1930s, he thinks. Uh, Before the days of concrete slabs and metal reinforcement, uh, it was laid on huge sandstone blocks. And year after year, the house survived. If any part of the building had slipped off the foundation or wasn't quite quite laid properly, then it would have simply, simply sunk into the sandy soil. But the house lasted the test of time because of the foundation on which it was laid. Same with the church. But here we see that the quality of the house, uh, the foundation is set. uh, Here the foundation for true Christian ministry remains the same. But what changes is the building materials built on this foundation. Read from verse 12 with me. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stone, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light, 
It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. You see, there will be a day when the Lord Jesus returns to come and judge. All hidden and invisible Christian ministry will be brought to light. The work will be tested by fire, and the work will either survive or be burnt up. Some materials will last, gold, silver, precious stones. That is Christian teaching consistent with the teaching of Christ, consistent with the foundation on which it's lay. As the foundation is sure, the the building materials are too. But others are not. Wood, hay and straw, teaching fabricated from man's own mind, not consistent with the scriptures, not consistent with the foundation of Jesus. You see, here we see God cares a lot about how people build. The loss spoken of in verse 15 is meant to be a warning for all those uh, that truly, uh, sorry, meant to be a warning to us all that uh, what truly counts in our service of Jesus is whether what we do lasts. The salvation of the builder isn't brought into question in verse 15. They will be saved. But the warning is meant to be serious. If we're telling people about Jesus, whether it be in our homes, our church or our community, we should be prayerful and we should be praying that what we're doing will last, that the people we're telling about Jesus will be found safe in him on the last day that they will remain with Jesus, saved by his blood, on the day that they meet him face to face. I feel this can be quite challenging, because so often in Christian ministry or in church, people, well, we, I, we like to be liked. We like to have people enjoy our company. We want to feel loved. We want people to feel supported. But our highest priority must be with those we tell about Jesus and those we disciple in the faith, that they will remain on the last day, that they will survive judgment because they are safe in Christ. I wonder if you noticed, although the warning is front and center, there's also a positive element too. Verse 14 says, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive reward. And similarly, back in verse 8, they will each be rewarded according to their labor. It's hard to know exactly what this means, But I think the best bet we have in the context comes in just the next chapter. In chapter 4, verse 5, this is what Paul says. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. It's almost like that well-done, good and faithful servant from Matthew 25. That is the reward for Christian service. Um, When I used to work as a primary school teacher, I found myself at many athletics carnivals. And what I noticed about athletics carnivals is that uh, people start out really fast and then they get to the back straight and they slow right down. And then they head around, they come into the home straight, and that's where parents tend to be cheering. A child will head, will will run so much faster because the parents are cheering them on. And if it's the 800 meters, then they go around again, slow right down, back straight, almost give up. But then for some reason, they're able to sprint the last 100 meters. You see, the challenge is 
Do we serve God wholeheartedly no matter where we are, who we're serving, and who sees it? Christian ministry is meant to be done for an audience of one. We shouldn't be people pretending when people see us. Next, we see the truth about growth is uh, the, the, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, verses 16 to 17. Read with me from verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? In the Old Testament, people would travel, they would journey to the temple to offer sacrifice, to meet with God. In John 2, Jesus calls himself the temple. He is the place where God reveals himself. He is the one through whom God relates to the world and in whom God's people worship. But here, staggeringly, the church is called the temple. The church in Corinth had forgotten whose they were. They are meant to be an outpost for Jesus, making him known in the world, the place where God's presence dwells within that community, the place where people come to know the living God. The corporate people of God is the location by which God's spirit dwells. Like a wall missing brick, each part of the temple is needed. Verse 17 said, and you together are that temple. God's church is sacred, it's holy, it's set apart because it's purchased by God for his use in this world. God will protect his church, although some might try to destroy it. Verse 17 says, God will destroy them. They will not win. The dwelling of God's spirit within the church community is meant to provide both a guard and a guide. We must understand how God's word and spirit work together. God's spirit dwells within those who have... Uh, so God's spirit dwells within those who have put their trust in Jesus. We, like the Corinthians, should be people who live by the spirit. That is to listen to God's word and to obey what he says. God's word and God's spirit go hand in hand. I love the way how Jesus put things so simply in John 13. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you love one another. Divisions and quarreling have no place in God's church because we must be an outpost of God's love, demonstrated by God's spirit lived in our lives. So the question we began with tonight is how does the church grow? We've been given a rich and vivid description of the unity of the church and, to, and seen how it grows. The church is God's field grown by God. The church is God's building built on Christ. The church is God's temple where the spirit dwells. Over the last couple of years, I've been watching the series The Crown, a dramatized version of the royal family and all the, the happenings. I've just got to the part where Prince William comes on, onto the scene as a small boy. And it sometimes gets me thinking, what would it be like to grow up as Prince William? Does someone whisper in your ear at some point and you're like, wait, I'm who? Or they take you to a particular castle and he says, wait, that's mine? As Christians grow and as the church community grows, it must grow in its appreciation of whose they are and what they already have. We have all things in common. We possess all things 
because we're in Christ. And that's what we'll see lastly. Possessing all things in Christ, verses 18 to 23. In verses 18 to 20, Paul pricks back up his metaphor of his theme of wisdom and folly. And he picks two quotes from the Old Testament, which really focus on God knowing and God seeing all things. And if God knows all things and sees all things, then we need God's perspective on life and the church. We need his, God's eye view. And what is it that God tells us? Verse 21, so then no more boasting about human leaders. It almost feels like Paul's now exasperated. He's had enough. Their divisions just simply will not do. So what does this church need to know? What, whose is this church and what do they have? Verse 21 continues. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Um, these, these five words there, world, life, death, present, future, it seems to be an encapsulation of what really, uh, what all humanity struggles with. You see, there's difficulties in the world, complexities in life, devastation of death, confusion about the present, uncertainty about the future. But you see, if we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God, then we belong to God, the God who is sovereign over the world, who is the giver and sustainer of life, the one who sent his son to free us from the curse of death, the God who never stumbles or sleeps in the present, and the God who knows the beginning from the end. He knows the future. These are things all Christians have in common once they've put their trust in Jesus. You see, we don't belong to human leaders. If we did, we'd simply be let down. Human leaders will let us down. But if we belong to Christ, which we do as Christians, he will never let us down. We are his possessions, his treasure, those he purchased with his own blood. Um, sometimes I get asked the question, which generation I'm in, and I really never know how to answer people, although I do know for sure that I'm in generation Toy Story. Now, what I mean by that is when I finished school and uh, I sat in the movie theater with my friends next to me, someone was bawling their eyes out, because just as Andy had grown up and left his toys behind, that too was us. Where had our parents put our toys? That is my generation. Now, what I love about the Toy Story movies is that Woody, if he ever gets confused of whose he is and what is his, he looks at his boot. He is Andy's. The challenge I want to give you this week is every time you put on your shoes, how about you say this to yourself? I am of Christ and Christ is of God. I am of Christ and Christ is of God. But when you come to church next Sunday, change it ever so slightly. Rather than the individual, the corporate, we are of Christ and Christ is of God. We are of Christ. We are his. We possess all things. Please join with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, so often we think we know best. We too often think that there's some silver bullet that will grow your church. Thank you for reminding us that all growth comes from you. Please continue to grow our church in number and maturity. 
Help us to be a church that builds all we do on the solid foundation of Christ and him crucified. Please remind us this week that in Christ we have all things. Help us not to be divided in our devotion to you, but appreciate more clearly that all that you have done to make us yours. Father, this week, please help us remind ourselves that I am of Christ and Christ is of God. May we remember together that we are of Christ and Christ is of God. So we are his and possess all things through him. In his name we pray. Amen.